So this morning we take a break from our series in the book of Job, and uh, in the Heidelberg Catechism, we are being now uh, brought into those Lord's Days that have to do with the Lord's Prayer. And so this morning I will be preaching from Matthew chapter 6, verses uh, 5 through 15. And I hear God's word as I read from Matthew 6, verses 5 through 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if, you, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So we've uh, read this morning from the Heidelberg Catechism regarding prayer. According to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, we are told that prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God in the name of Christ, by the help of his Spirit, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. So prayer is a spiritual exercise of faith. Basically, it is talking to God, and it is an important part of the Christian life, something that we are even commanded by God to do as Christians. And prayer has in God's plan many purposes, Through prayer, we tune into God's will. Through prayer, we praise God. Through prayer, we lift up our requests to God. In fact, God tells us that we have not because we ask not, which tells us that it is through prayer that we receive the blessings of God. It is through the prayer of repentance that our sins are forgiven. Through prayer, we grow closer to God as we commune with him. Through prayer, our priorities and our desires are more closely aligned with his. Prayer is an important and natural part of our spiritual lives. We see that even in the life of our Lord, that he felt the need at times to be alone in order to commune with his heavenly Father in prayer. What is amazing and even disturbing is that such a wonderful spiritual thing as prayer can be and is in fact perverted by so many. What has been intended by God as a means of bringing glory to himself and a means of edification for his people is turned into something entirely of the devil. Talking about prayer becoming a tool of the hypocrite, a means by which men can appear religious and exalt themselves. And Jesus would not only expose the hypocrisy in how we give alms, which is in the context just before this, but even now brings to light that much prayer is also nothing less than hypocrisy. The term hypocrite originally referred to actors who would use these large masks uh, to portray the roles that they were playing. And so hypocrites basically are actors, P 
people playing a role. Uh, what they say and do does not represent their true inner feelings or beliefs, but only the outward image that they hope to create. And even with something as holy as prayer, the scribes and Pharisees were hypocrites. They were pretending to be pious, all the while using prayer to attract attention and bring honor to themselves. And the fact that prayer can be used in this way ought to be a reminder to us how subtle Satan is and how depraved we really are by nature. We imagine, I think, perhaps that Satan steers clear of anything religious, and yet just the opposite is true. The more sacred something is, the more determined he is to pervert it. And Satan's goal is to turn something God-glorifying into something that dishonors him. And Satan is greatly pleased when man turns what ought to be a pious act of worship into a worship of himself. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a Reformed British preacher, he writes this. He says, we tend to think of sin as we see it in rags and in the gutters of life. We look at a drunkard, poor fellow, and we say, there is sin. But that is not the essence of sin. To have a real picture and a true understanding of sin, you must look at some great saint, some unusually devout and devoted man. Look at him there on his knees in the very presence of God. Even their self is intruding itself. And the temptation is for him to think about himself, to think pleasantly and pleasurably about himself and to be to be really worshiping himself rather than God. That, not the other, is the true picture of sin. The other is sin, of course, but there you do not see it at its acme. You do not see it in its essence. Or to put it in another form, if you really want to understand something about the nature of Satan and his activities, the thing to do is not to go to the dregs or to the gutters of life. If you really want to know something about Satan, go away to that wilderness where our Lord spent 40 days and 40 nights. That's the true picture of Satan, where you see him tempting the very Son of God. End quote. So don't imagine that just because you are here this morning worshiping, or just because during the week you're praying to the Lord that there Satan and sin are nowhere to be found. Our sinful nature is such that we quite often combine God. Uh, I should say, man-glorifying pride with uh, the worship of God. So what was it about the prayers of the scribes and Pharisees that was so hypocritical? What was it about their prayers that was displeasing to God? What was it about these hypocrites specifically that prompted Jesus to say, do not be like them? Well, he brings up two particular issues. He says, first of all, verse 5, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. And secondly, he instructs his disciples, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. And so these two things in particular characterize prayers that are displeasing to God. And I would have us now look, first of all, more specifically at these two ways in which the religious in Jesus' day perverted prayer. And then once we understand the wrong things that they were doing, we'll have a better idea of what proper God-glorifying prayer is to be like. And lastly, we will consider how the Lord's Prayer fits into this pattern of proper prayer. 
So we see in verse 5 that the first issue Jesus confronts is hypocrisy in the context of prayer. He says you must not be like the hypocrites. And we need to know something of the Jewish culture in order to understand exactly how this particular hypocrisy worked itself out. In Jesus' day, there were set times of prayer when the religious would, would, were, they were expected to um, attend um, times of devotion. These, these times of prayer corresponded with the services at the temple. So sacrifices, including prayers, were offered in the temple twice a day at 9 o'clock and at 3. Uh, so 9 o'clock in the morning, 3 in the afternoon. There was also a sunset service, and so there were morning, afternoon, and evening prayers. And if you were living in Jerusalem and were near the temple, it was logical that you would go to the temple at these times of prayer. But otherwise, the synagogue would do um, that was near to you or even the street. In other words, even the Jews in Jesus' day understood that prayer was not of necessity tied to the temple. The important thing to do was to stop whatever you were doing, wherever you were, and to engage in a time of prayer. It's not difficult to understand how such set times of prayer could become only a ritual. It was certainly possible to use these set times to worship God and to glorify God in prayer. And you can be sure that some of the Jews thought about the words that they prayed and that they sincerely, um, uh, they sincerely believed what they prayed. But others just went through the motions mumbling out the syllables of their prayers as fast as possible so that they could get on with their work. And yet another group, the one that Jesus is here specifically thinking of, they were able to recite their prayers flawlessly. In fact, they would, they would make sure to enunciate every word and syllable properly. To them, prayer was an art. It was something that you practiced. It was something that you became good at, just like you might become good at playing a musical instrument. Naturally, they made sure that they prayed long enough to give the impression that they were really into their prayers and to make sure that it was noticed how religious they were. And so three times a day, a person was able to show off their great prayer abilities. Um, Jesus knew their their hypocrisy, and he tells us why they really prayed. He says they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by men. Now notice Jesus here is not condemning standing and praying. That's not the emphasis here. The problem was not standing. Standing was the normal position for prayer among the Jews of that time. Uh, We find in Scripture people praying in all kinds of positions. uh, But in the New Testament, the most common position appears to be standing. So standing to pray did not necessarily indicate a problem. It did not indicate necessarily a desire to be noticed. Nor is Jesus here condemning all praying in the synagogues or streets. It was briefly mentioned just a moment ago that wherever a person was at the appointed hour of prayer, they were to stop. And if they were at a street corner, if they were walking down the street, if they were at the synagogue, wherever they were, they were to stop and to offer up prayers to God. And that in and of itself was not wrong. What's interesting and significant in bringing out the hypocrisy of these Jews was that the word street used in verse 5 refers to a wide major street. So a street where a crowd was most likely to be. And so it's clear that these hypocrites loved to pray where they would have the largest audience. They wanted the great 
greatest possible exposure possible. Of course, there was nothing wrong with praying on a street corner if you just happened to be there at the time of prayer. But it was an entirely different thing to plan to be there so that you would have a large audience to observe your piety. And so you can picture it, can't you? The scribes and Pharisees paying attention to the time so that they can be sure to get out on the streets, pretending to be going someplace so that the prayer time catches them right on the streets. In fact, right, at, right on a street corner. Does it even have to be explained how much of a perversion of prayer this is? They were not thinking of God. They were praying to themselves. They were praying before other people. Prayer was being used as a tool of sinful human pride. These men were like sponges soaking in the praise of men. The other issue that Jesus also confronts as being a perversion of prayer is what he refers to as a heaping up of empty phrases or Maybe your translation says using vain repetition, thinking that by your many words you will be heard. There were several reasons that the Jews esteemed long prayers. The main reason was because, as Jesus says, they thought that by their many words their prayers would be heard. There are also several other reasons for long prayers that are related to this main one, which brings out yet once again the hypocrisy of these religious leaders. It was commonly believed that the longer the prayer, the more pious and effective it was. The longer it was, the more God was pleased with it, the more likely he was to answer it in a positive way. Jesus also in in Mark 12 verse 40 warned of the scribes who, quote, for appearances sake offer long prayers. In other words, the Jews again found another way in which to impress others through prayer. Long prayers would give the impression of exceptional sincerity and great devotion. Those who would pray these long prayers were the spiritually elite. But Jesus here says that such prayers are only empty phrases, and he equates such prayers with the prayers of the Gentiles. Not that long prayers are wrong per se, right? The motive is what must be kept in mind. So then what is the motive? that the Lord is condemning, that are behind these long, babbling, repetitious prayers of the Gentiles. (coughs) Well, they imagine that the louder and longer they pray, the greater the chance they will receive what they are praying for. Let's think of the, the prayers of the priests of Baal there on Mount Carmel. They called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying the same thing over and over again like a broken record. Along the same lines, rosaries are used to count off repeated prayers of Hail Mary and Our Father, the rosary itself coming to the Roman church from Buddhism by way of the Spanish Muslims. Pagans think their gods have to first be aroused and then badgered into listening and answering. When Jesus speaks of heaping up empty phrases, he's speaking up He's speaking of meaningless repetition, or as one translator puts it, babbling on and on. In the Greek, what is translated in our Bibles as empty phrases is one word, and and that one word refers to idle, thoughtless chatter. And here in the context, clearly, the kind of jabber that the pagans would ritualistically mutter to their gods over and over again. And yet it's easy to fall into that sort of pattern even in Christian prayer, and that's exactly what Christ condemns. 
It's easy to resort to repetition in prayer because it's easy. It demands little or no concentration. Repetition means going through the motions of prayer but not really communing with God. And the Jews had fallen into this rut of thinking that if they just say a bunch of religious words, they will be heard. In fact, the more words, the better. Because a long prayer was considered a better prayer. A long prayer was more impressive also to those watching We know from a study of Jewish history that the Jews had many memorized prayers they used. And while such liturgical prayers are not necessarily wrong, it is easy for those prayers to become merely habit and formality. And the words being said just to give the impression that you are praying. Jesus, notice here, he's not saying that we're not to be persistent in our prayers. Don't misunderstand what he's saying here. The Bible tells us to pray without ceasing. We have the parable of the importunate widow to remind us to continually bring our requests before God. Jesus is not condemning honest, genuine requests for help from God, even if we are bringing them over and over again. No, he is condemning the mindless, indifferent recital of spiritual-sounding incantations, as though prayer is saying magical formulas over and over in order to impress God into acting. How often do you say the same prayers over and over again, same wording over and over again to the point where you give no thought to even what you're praying? Often this occurs with prayer at mealtime. How often do we even sit through the, the Sunday morning prayer, the pastoral prayer, with heads bowed down, giving the appearance of praying, but you're thinking about other things? and therefore not praying at all. When you're asked to pray in public, do you ever find yourself, right as you pray, wondering what other people are going to be thinking about your prayer? You try to then use certain words to make your prayer long in order to to try to impress. As we consider our tendencies to be hypocrites, we can readily agree that much prayer is done improperly. We have seen the kind of prayer that is, is displeasing to the Lord, but what prayers, from a positive point of view, are pleasing to the Lord? Well, rather than babbling on and on with vain repetition, the Lord would have us speak directly from the heart. He says that there is no need to offer wordy prayers, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. Now, there are some who maybe hear that, and then they think that then there's really no purpose to prayer. There's really no need for prayer But God's knowledge of all things doesn't destroy the purpose of prayer, as many think. Jesus doesn't mean to imply that it is useless or even wrong to bring our requests to God. He is simply telling us, you don't need to go on and on and on and on as though God doesn't already know uh, what you're going to ask. You're not informing him uh, of something he doesn't know. But he still commands us to pray. In fact, he assures us that through the means of prayer, He bestows his gifts upon his children. And so the Lord would have us to even pray persistently as long as it is prayer from the heart out of true faith. Prayer ought to not become a ritual or habit, in other words, but to be the expression of your deepest convictions. And furthermore, the prayer that is pleasing to the Lord is prayer that's offered not for the sake of men, not offered to men, but to God. Your audience must not be other people, it must be God. Which doesn't mean that public prayer is wrong. 
A study of scripture confirms that public prayer is biblical. In fact, if you pay, pay close, close attention to what Christ is talking about here in the passage before us, you'll recognize that he's not talking about public prayer. He is condemning personal prayers that are done publicly in order to impress. It's very possible that you can offer a public prayer and for the audience to still be only God. It's all a matter of the attitude of mind and heart. It has to do with why you are praying. What Jesus requires is sincerity in prayer. What he requires is a real desire to talk to God. Out of the fellowship that you enjoy with God, if you really want to commune with God, you're going to, uh, to, 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 to go to a, uh, to a private place. You're not going to purposely go to a public place. Why did the Lord, when he wanted to pray, go off by himself into the hills? Because it's in seclusion that we can concentrate it is by ourselves, away from the hustle and bustle of life, that we're able to focus upon the Lord. And if you are sincere in your desire to worship God in prayer, you don't even need the Lord to explain what's going on here in verse 6, where he says, But you, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The main point of these words is not to prescribe a specific location, as, as though um, prayers can only be offered there. But he's saying that uh, you need to do whatever is necessary to get your attention from off of yourself and, and the things going on in your life and to focus upon God and on him alone. Purposely going out into the busy streets in order to show off defeats the entire purpose of prayer from the get-go. You should want to be free of all distractions so that we can talk to God. In fact, the desire to avoid distractions is why typically we shut our eyes in prayer. If, I don't know if you ever thought about that, but nowhere in scripture are we commanded to shut our eyes, but we do so in obedience to the spirit of Christ's words here in this passage. We are to use whatever is at our disposal to, to shut out the world that we can be alone with God. And because of so much confusion about what true prayer is, and because we tend to pray improperly, Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer. And he tells us that we are to pray then like this. Pray then like this, he says, over against all of the hypocrisy, over against the, the, these long prayers. Pray then like this. This is the proper way to pray. This is a pattern for all good prayer. Notice, first of all, that this is a brief prayer. It is only 70 words long. There are no extra words tacked on to make the person praying sound like they're well-learned and eloquent. It says what needs to be said and moves on. And in this short space, really, a whole lot is said. It gets right at the heart of what should be the issues of true prayer. And when we look at the content of the Lord's Prayer, we also recognize right away that the priority in prayer is to be God and man second. There's, that was certainly an idea foreign to the Jewish leaders who used prayer to glorify themselves. The first three petitions have reference to God and his glory in and through our lives. The last three petitions have to do with our human needs, but even these are related to God's glory. And so the prayer begins with the request that God's name be hallowed. Um, the request is that God would be glorified. And to pray this means that your greatest desire 
The desire that, in fact, is to then govern all of the other requests to follow is that God would be honored in your life and in the life of others. The praying of this request alone from the heart will necessarily do away with all of the hypocrisy which Christ has just condemned. And furthermore, we ask that his kingdom would come and that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in praying these, these next two petitions, we are indicating that God's glory as revealed in his kingdom is the priority in our lives. We want our hearts to be more fully subdued and governed by God's spirit. We want his kingdom to be extended throughout the world. And most of all, we long for the kingdom of glory, which is yet to come. And these first three petitions make abundantly clear that prayer is to be God-centered. It's not man-centered. Prayer, proper prayer, is God-centered. And even in the requests for our own needs that follow these petitions are subservient to the highest goal of God's glory. <coughs> we ask for our daily bread so that we might live and carry out God's will for us in our earthly lives. We ask God to forgive us our debts because the greatest need we have is spiritual, which is to be free from the guilt of our sins so that we're no longer separated from God. <coughs> Pardon me. After all, it's only through forgiveness through Christ we can have fellowship with God and be a part of his kingdom. We pray, lead us not into temptation because we know that because of the, <coughs> the sin nature that still clings to us, we're inclined towards still falling into sin. So once again, the concern is God's glory. Our desire as his children is that the circumstances of our lives would not become an occasion for sin that would be dishonoring to him. Then the final words of the Lord's Prayer which we don't necessarily have um, in every version, but uh, those words that are found in some, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. These, this is all about praise to God, indicating once again the priority of God and his praise in our prayers. The Lord's Prayer is a very unselfish prayer. Included in it by implication is prayer for others, for we pray it with and on behalf of others. Notice, our Father. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. Prayer is focused primarily upon God and then on others and self last. And the Lord makes clear in the final words of 14 and 15 that how you live outwardly is a reflection of what you are inwardly. An unwillingness to forgive others is evidence of a heart that is been untouched by the forgiveness of God. And the same principle applies to what Christ has been saying about prayer. How you pray is a reflection of the state of your heart before God. And as you consider the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees, and as you, you see their tendency to make prayer into simply a religious ritual, as you see what prayer can become in the hands of the devil, you must recognize the same tendencies in your prayers. These words of the Lord are not grounds for self-righteousness. We're not to, to read this passage and think, well, man, I'm thankful I'm not like the scribes and Pharisees. But these words are meant to probe all of our hearts, given in order for you and me to recognize that our sinfulness touches and perverts even the most holy of exercises. Because of our failures to pray, 
in the right way, with the right attitude, with the right motives. We even have to ask Christ for forgiveness for our prayers, for our improper prayers. But thankfully, Christ died even for the sin of hypocrisy as it even touches our prayers. And he's willing to forgive those who hate this sin, who long to serve him more faithfully and truly. And may God work in our hearts so that we in all things would seek his glory. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would forgive us for improper prayer. Lord, we do not always have the right motives, the right attitude as we come before you in prayer. Uh, we, we confess this, Father. It grieves us because we know that prayer is to be a time of worship. It is to be a time of, of talking with you, reflecting upon you, uh, looking to you humbly for the things that we need. Is to be a time of fellowship. And Father, we, we uh, confess that often we have turned it into something that is self-centered. So Father, forgive us. And we thank you for the forgiveness that is in Christ. And we thank you that, in fact, you, you call us to pray, to, to, to call upon you as our Heavenly Father. What an amazing thing that we, who are sinners deserving to be cast off, would be brought into your fellowship and encouraged to bring to you our requests our needs spiritually and physically. And, uh, Father, we thank you for your willingness to hear our prayers for the sake of Christ. Um, may you, Lord, continue to work in our hearts that your glory would more and more be the priority. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.